for the term. My name is Federico Varese and I am the director of the Extra Legal Governance Institute. And this term we are joined with sociology for our series of seminars. So welcome. And there are many advantages to this, including the food that we usually get there. So I'm very grateful to be partner. So, so it's my great pleasure to introduce Professor Uslaner, Eric Uslaner, who is a professor of government and politics at the University of Maryland in College Park. He has taught there since 1975. His research is really about trust. He studies how why people trust each other. And also he has an interest, in, especially in the United States, but also comparatively. He's well known for a book called The Moral Foundations of Trust, Cambridge University Press. Yes. Um, but now he's working on a new project, uh, as should be. Uh, and the new project is about corruption, inequality, and trust, which is the topic of today's talk. So without further ado, thank you so much for coming all the way from the United States to talk to us. And thank you very, very much, Federico, for the kind invitation and also for the inspiration that your work has helped in developing my own thought. Uh, and also, while he could make it to Diego Gambetta, whose work also played a huge role in shaping my own thought. And also, an introduction here to Ozan Kalkan, who was my graduate student at Maryland, who was on a postdoc at Oxford. Uh, and I also just noticed here that I... I'll get this later. Well, again, thank you. I will try to make this as painless as possible for those people who uh, may not like different ways of uh, attacking issues. Uh, and what I'm going to do today is talk about the argument from my book uh, and why this argument is a bit different from what you would normally see. Uh, and why I think, nevertheless, while it's different, it's, I think it's also correct. So I'm going to start off with the standard question. Which countries are corrupt? And you'll see some of these countries in italics uh, here, and those are because in earlier incarnations of this talk, I've given this talk in those countries that are in italics. <laughs> um, and they wanted to know where they rank. And I'll give you the good news, which is that the most honest countries are New Zealand, Finland, all the Nordic countries, and Singapore. And Britain comes close to that list, so you'll be happy to know that you are reasonably honest here. The most corrupt countries are Myanmar, Somalia, Iraq, and Haiti. You sort of have the axis of evil represented here. And then in the middle, you see some other countries I visited. Uh, and every time I go to one of these countries, they say, no, we're not in the middle. We should be at the bottom. But the reason why they're in the middle is because the top is so small. And that the middle is pretty corrupt. And the bottom is beyond hope. OK. By now. There are many, many cross-national studies, as well as, inter as well as studies within countries of corruption. And there is a developing literature or developed literature on what causes corruption. And the overwhelming conclusion of most of these studies focuses on institutional factors. And there are two reasons why they focus on institutional factors. Reason one 
is theoretical, which is democracy is good, corruption is bad, so if you get more of the good, you should have less of the bad. The second reason is that much of the concern for corruption has come both academically and financially from the World Bank. World Bank has had an excellent anti-corruption group of people. They've now sort of winnowing that down. But financially, the World Bank is a bank. They want to be repaid. Corrupt countries don't repay them. So how can we get repaid? And obviously, changing institutions is a whole lot easier than changing cultures. So the World Bank focuses on changing institutions so that they can get their money back. Now, what sort of institutions do they say? Well, democracy. And I'm going to talk about democracy. And I'm going to give you a clue in advance. Democracy is not the answer to ending corruption. An ineffective judiciary. Well, that's not the answer either. Because you simply can't make a judiciary more effective and expect corruption to go down. You can make, as I'll talk about, a judiciary more fair, and then corruption will go down, but that's a different issue. Unfair elections. Well, to say that unfair elections are the cause of corruption is like saying that clouds are the cause of rain which you are all experts on living in England. <laughs> Unfair elections are part of corruption and the lack of free media. I may be jumping ahead a few slides, but great study done by a couple of economists at the World, one at the World Bank and one at Stanford, published uh, in the Journal of Economic Perspectives. And you may, some of you may know of former President Alberto Fujimori of Peru, and his number one guy, you must know this piece I'm talking about, his number one guy, Montesinos, uh, was heavily into corruption. In fact, he created his own little podcast here and taped all of his demands for corruption. So in case any of the people who didn't bribe him didn't pay, he could show them these videos and say, see, here's what you promised. Except that some journalists in Lima got a hold of these tapes and started offering them to the major TV stations, none of which were interested in showing them because they were all implicated. But they found one little cable station that had not been part of this bribery, and this station showed these tapes continuously, like for weeks which led Montesinos to go to jail, Fujimori to flee to Japan, the whole government to collapse, and people said, Peru is on the way to cleanliness. Well, five years later, Peru's Transparency International score declined by a full point. In other words, they were a full point more corrupt than they were when this began. So the notion that a free media will lead to less corruption may not be completely accurate. 
So this notion that the here I've just gone through many of these same things. The media also may be captured or may be ineffective. Now, from my book, Corruption, Inequality, and the Rule of Law, Shameless Self-Promotion, Cambridge 2008, by April it will be out in paperback as well, and soon to become a major podcast. <laughs> uh, here's my argument. Inequality, we have what I call an inequality trap. High inequality leads to low generalized trust and high in-group trust. And I get this from Diego Gambetta and Frederica Varese's argument that corruption rests upon high in-group trust and low out-group trust, which in turn leads to corruption, which in turn leads to more inequality. And here is the story. When there is high degree of inequality, people don't trust outsiders. They believe that outsiders are trying to do them in. And therefore, they withdraw into themselves and their own in-groups, including their own political leaders, who may be corrupt, but in the words of Franklin Roosevelt, when asked about a corrupt Latin American leader that the United States was supporting in the 1930s, FDR said, he may be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. <laughs> so people will defend their own leader's corruption as necessary to provide them with the day-to-day -day sustenance that they need to survive. And yes, corruption is bad, but if we have to do it to defend ourselves against these outgroups that are trying to rob us of what we should have, we'll accept it. So that leads to high levels of corruption, but corruption is a tax. It's an indirect tax as well as a direct tax. It means that there's less money from the treasury. There's less money to build social welfare projects that will help people get out of poverty. It also is a tax in a different way. Routine services that you and I take for granted in the modern Western state don't happen in corrupt societies. You go to the doctor's office, you don't want to be there until tomorrow, you pay a little bit of money to get seen earlier. A policeman stops you for going above the speed limit, and I know nobody in this room would ever do that. In corrupt countries, you simply pay the policeman. Don't pay the, um, don't go to court. So it works for everybody. Same thing for getting a visa, same thing for all sorts of daily routine things. And so corruption costs people more money, and except it's even worse, it's worse for the poor because the poor can't afford to pay even these small bribes, and that means they go without. Finally, an idea that we might think of adopting in some corrupt countries, including many countries in Central and Eastern Europe as well as Africa, students pay university professors for better grades. <laughs> An idea whose time has come. <laughs> we, on the other hand, have to give you objective grades based upon your performance. So corruption leads to more inequality along those lines. Now, I've talked about the dilemma of trust in strangers and high trust only in your own group. And again, inequality and in-group trust lead to clientelism, even in countries like the United States where for a long time immigrants 
became dependent upon political leaders from their own group and for jobs, for sustenance, for virtually everything. And here's the key thing. This pattern is difficult to break. Now, I will be talking about two types of inequality, the standard economic inequality and also an unfair legal system. They are not identical, although an unfair legal system is sort of one of the key aspects of corruption. I'll get back to that in a second. Now, originally, before I brought trust back into this, and some of you may know my work on trust, but I thought I was just going to write a book on corruption and inequality and sort of talk about trust in the background until I was confronted with this little finding. Here is the bivariate relationship, excluding present and former communist countries, which are badly measured for inequality, and they have a different type of inequality anyhow that you can't easily get at. Here's what you get on a lowest plot, which is just simply a plot of a distribution of data um, for corruption and inequality. And it doesn't take a PhD in statistics to realize that this is not an overwhelmingly powerful finding. In fact, the R square here was a little bit less than, well, about 0.15. So you can't publish a university press book with a finding like this. And so I had two opportunity, two alternatives. And you can guess from the fact that the book was published, which one I took. One was to give up on the project. And the second was to try to find a way around it. So I chose the second. And what I did was I brought trust back into the equation because setting up the causal chain from inequality to low levels of trust. And I already demonstrated this in my earlier work that inequality was the highest, was the most strongest determinant of low trust, but also that trust is a strong determinant of corruption. And you see this here, trust is a pretty strong cross-national determinant of corruption. So we have this causal chain from high inequality to low outgroup trust to more corruption, and eventually back to more inequality. So this is how I rescued the argument. But I'll come back later on and show you at the individual level in surveys, particularly in highly corrupt countries, that there is a direct relationship between perceptions of inequality and perceptions of corruption. So there's also the correlation between trust and economic inequality. I just have a clarifying question. The index for... Um Corruption, is it, it's reversed or something? I see the Scandinavian countries are high. Yeah. Okay. Uh, um, yeah. Um, it's actually the Transparency International Index, which they call a corruption's perception index, is actually the lowest scores are the most corrupt countries. The highest scores are the uh, most honest countries. So why they do that, I don't know. But they've been doing it since the 1980s, and I don't think they're about to change now. But it's a good question. So what happens is equality promotes the vision of a shared fate where others are part of your moral community and it makes you a bit less likely, less willing to engage in corrupt behavior against them. Now, the key part of the argument is the inequality trap. Corruption is sticky. Inequality is sticky. 
and trust is sticky both over time and across generations. And this is why institutional accounts don't work. So let's look at corruption being sticky. You see over here that across 52 countries, the R square is 0.742 in corruption from the first time it was measured and to 2004. You can extend it now to the 2008-2009 data. It's about the same number. The R square for the most commonly used measures of economic inequality, the Deniger Square World Bank measures between 1980 and 1990. I know that this is a very short time frame. Uh, is 0.676 for 42 countries. For a smaller group of countries between 96 and 63, and when they end in 96, it's 0.706. However, a more recent finding, which I haven't done anything yet with, for a series of 38 countries, I can explain more than half of the variance in 2008 levels of corruption by the level of inequality in 1880. So this is a long-standing thing. It doesn't change very much. And again, trust um, does not change much over time. Fairly small end. You can see I end with the 1995 wave of the World Value Survey. In case anyone has any questions, I can tell you why I don't use newer waves of the World Value Survey, which I think are about as good as random numbers. Okay. Institutions don't change often, but rarely do social scientists get the opportunity to have laboratory experiments like chemists do or physicists do. But we actually had something like this going on in the 1980s. We had a wave of democratization in the communist world and also in many other parts of Latin America and Africa. Democracy bloomed across many parts of the world in the 1980s. But corruption didn't go down. And as I say to my friends in Romania, Romania may be a democracy, but it's still Romania. And you could probably find almost any Romanian who would say the same thing. So now, instead of paying off in Russia, instead of paying off the oligarchs, you pay off the new oligarchs. And it doesn't take a whole lot of looking into any major international publication, try The Economist, local thing, for, I mean, who has which has tons of stories on corruption, and see how many stories are on Russia or on Central and Eastern Europe. And it's basically the same old story. So here's the bad news statistically. The, we have measures of democratization from Freedom House. And the R-square in political rights shows some instability from 73 to 2003, which means there's change. So countries that were autocratic in the 70s became democratic by 2003. That's the good. That's good. But when you look at the changes in democratization and the changes in corruption, 
you wind up with this r squared for one measure and this r squared for the other. These aren't changes. These are just the, um, um, these are, oh yeah, these are changes. But when we move back to 1988, you say, well, wait a minute, 73 is too far back? Let's look right before communism fell. This doesn't help. And there's one I had to add to four decimal places. Oh, okay, this was the one, yeah. So, institutions change. They're not nearly as sticky as inequality. But structural change does not track the level of transparency or corruption. And democracy is hardly the cure-all. Uh, yes, free countries are less corrupt, but when you take into account a bigger model, democratization washes out. So what I do is I estimate a six-equation structural equation model for uh, corruption. And here is the model. Only one institutional factor seems to matter, which is the fairness of the legal system, not the efficiency. And I measure the fairness of the legal system by some, a measure constructed by the Economist Intelligence Unit. This was the only measure that I could find that, was not, that did not include corruption as part of the general measure. Because obviously if corruption was part of the measure and you tried to explain corruption using corruption, you'd do a tremendous job. <laughs> and it still works pretty well. And you see legal fairness leads to less corruption. In-group trust leads to higher corruption. Generalized trust leads to lower corruption. But higher corruption in turn leads to low generalized trust. There's a story here of interest. Inequality leads to lower generalized trust, which again leads to corruption. So there's both a direct and indirect effect from, inequ from, uh, from inequality. No, sorry, there's only an indirect effect from inequality, but generalized trust has both a direct effect on corruption and an indirect effect through inequality. Can you tell us a little bit about how... Uh, Some of these things are measured? For legal fairness, yeah. yeah. It was a measure from the Economist Intelligence Unit, which sent people in to investigate. And with the key notion on legal fairness is that people of different economic status were treated equally. So it was a subjective yes. measure based on a random sample of individuals from each country? Well, no, I think based upon elite experts. Elite. Yeah. Okay, but it was a subjective measure, so their perceptions of how fair the legal system was. How fair the system was, yeah. I'm sorry, I wish I could come up with a better measure overall, and there are some survey questions, but they're not done systematically across enough countries to get this done. But I will show you later on that there's actual survey evidence from particularly places like Nigeria that high levels of legal unfairness are perceived to be highly related to corruption. Now, the one policy issue, strict regulation. I'm not talking about regulation in the Swedish sense. I'm talking about regulation in lots of I's having to be dotted, lots of T's being crossed, lots of little bureaucrats sitting out there. So the more people you bring into the stage, the more papers that have to be signed, the greater the opportunity for corruption. 
corruption in turn leads to a, a greater level of risk from the International Control Risk ICRG, International Control Risk Group, perception of how risky is it to invest in this economy. So that's a bad impact from corruption as well as more inequality. And look at this. Corruption leads to less effective government, but the arrow doesn't go the other way. Now, where do I measure? How do I measure effective government? The World Economic Forum asked elites in each country to rank the performance of different governmental institutions. I pulled teeth to get this aggregate data from the World Economic Forum. They said no. I said please. They said absolutely not. I said pretty please. And they said if you're going to keep asking for it, we have no alternative but just to give it to you. <laughs> so they gave it to me. And again, there's a one-way relationship here. Also, ethnic tensions lead to less effective government, but not directly to corruption, but there is an impact through particularized trust, which is badly measured. The only measure I could come up with cross-nationally is a country that makes it impossible or difficult to convert from one religion to another. So restrictions on religious conversion. That's the, the only measure I can come up with for particularized trust. Now, this is a fairly complicated model. The quick story is external exogenous institutions don't matter. I'll get to that in a second. There is strong support for this inequality trap model I proposed with the strongest impacts, again, from legal fairness and generalized trust. Now, what else isn't in this model that can standard models? And they're all, I, I analyzed each of these things at least in one at a time, sometimes multiple things at a time, and here's what didn't work. Public sector wages. So you see the argument that's made, the reason why people steal is because they're not paid enough. Nope. If you increase their salary, they still steal. Because if you increase their salary and they stole, their salary would be even higher. Per capita income. Rich countries. More honest than poor countries. Yeah, a bit. But these other factors work much better. The size of the unofficial economy, insignificant when you put all these other things in. Level of newspaper readership, that is, I've already told you why I don't think that a free press always works. Oh, here's my favorite. Federal or unitary governments, or the size of share of government revenue spent at the local level. There are the, there's a huge literature on decentralization and corruption. And half of it says that centralized leadership increases corruption because that increases the size of the grabbing hands. Central authority means it's easier to grab resources. And the other half of the literature says no, multiple grabbing hands increase corruption because that leads to lots of little tyrants taking in the money. And they're both wrong. And it may be that in different places they're both right, but there is no overall pattern. 
Maybe sometimes centralization works and sometimes it doesn't. And again, the level of democracy or the structure of the electoral system all vanish in these models. So all these traditional institutional factors vanish in this inequality trap model. Now, I promised you that I'd look at how people perceive corruption. And in my book, I looked at this from transition countries, from Africa, especially a model for Nigeria, which is home to many of the emails that some of you may receive. And in fact, these emails are one of the larger sources of revenue for the state of Nigeria. And there is even a section, a specific term for these emails in Nigeria, 419, which is the section of the Nigerian criminal code that deals with fraud. And people sometimes will put on their houses because people will come across someone's house in Nigeria and will try to sell it to somebody else, saying it's my house and here's the deed, which is of course fake. And people will go and buy the deed and then they'll have a fight as to who owns the house. So people will paint on their house, no 419. This house not for sale. So, what do we see here? And there's also two important stories coming here. Story one is in transition countries and in Africa, people see a clear link between corruption and inequality, both economic and legal. These are survey questions. Uh, specific surveys that I've been able to obtain in Romania and Estonia at, in particular. And uh, the Afrobarometer data from Africa, and I specifically looked at um, Nigeria and Botswana, which will come later. But also, story two. And here is this sort of really interesting little link. What leads to lower levels of trust is not petty corruption, paying the doctor, paying the police officer, paying for little services at the Customs Bureau. No, what bothers people is grand corruption. The leader who owns homes in 12 different countries, the people who have big mansions, the business people who have huge houses. In countries with high levels of corruption, people don't believe that hard work is a guarantee of success. Instead, what they believe is the only way you can get rich is by being corrupt. Now, what does this say about the doctor, the police officer? Well, when they get a small fee from you, they're not buying a house in the Cayman Islands. They don't have a bank account in those islands. They can perhaps take their spouse out to dinner for this little extra money they get. But they're not getting rich. So the lack of a connection between petty corruption and trust, the huge connection between grand corruption and trust, suggests that the element of institutional design, the element of corruption that gets people mad and gets people to become less trusting, is indeed the economic inequality component. Now, one of the things going on in Central and Eastern Europe is while they got democracy, they also got rising inequality. 
In virtually every transition country, with the exception of Slovakia, inequality rose sharply after transition. And again, market democracy seemed a false hope to many people in transition countries. In particular, they looked at their legal system. And look at this in Russia now, or Romania or Bulgaria. What you see is an unfair legal system. The elite can evade taxes. They bribe officials. If somehow they're caught, they won't be prosecuted. If somehow they're prosecuted, they won't go to jail. And if somehow they're Oh, sorry, if somehow they're tried, they won't be convicted. If they're convicted, they won't go to jail, and if somehow they do go to jail, they'll get out. And this is how people perceive what an unfair legal system is, particularly in survey questions. And this is why the unfairness of the legal system, more than simply the number of courts. I begin my book with a little story. And I'll read you the first line of my book from memory, exactly. When I was 15 years old, I delivered a plain white envelope containing a $50 bill to the chief of police of Patterson, New Jersey. That was necessary to help my father get city business for our stationery store. Probably small corruption, but I grew up in what was arguably the most corrupt city in the United States, Patterson, New Jersey. I understood corruption at an early age, which probably played a role in my wanting to do some research on it. And the one thing we knew is that the single biggest source of crime in Patterson was the police department. The second single biggest source of crime were the judges. So. Yes, you can send all the bad guys to jail, but if they go to jail, there'll be more bad guys to replace them. And you do a Google search for corruption in Patterson, New Jersey, and when I wrote that story, I was 13 years old in the year 1960. It still continues. They changed the ethnic mix of Patterson. It doesn't matter. New politicians of different backgrounds have learned the game. It continues. They've changed the form of government of Patterson more times than you can imagine designing an alternative political structure. It continues. So put the bad guys in jail. There are new ones to take their place. Or in some places, like what is considered now to be perhaps the most corrupt city in the United States, Providence, Rhode Island, former mayor Buddy Cianci has spent two terms in jail once for attacking his wife's lover with an ashtray, and second for fraud. And Buddy Cianci announced that, yes, he's planning on coming back. From Akron, Ohio, former Congressman Jim Traficant, who spent several years in the slammer for various and sundry racketeering charges, now is out of jail hosting a talk show on radio in Cleveland and is saying he is surveying three different congressional districts planning his comeback. And then finally in the United States there was, oh, who was the uh, former mayor of Boston who, uh, I'll remember his name uh, a little bit later, but he 
went to jail for criminal justice, I mean, for, for, for bribery, while in jail got elected as governor of Massachusetts and pardoned himself as his first act. <laughs> and they said he was the only person ever to serve two terms concurrently. <laughs> so, in a situation with high legal inequality, putting the bad guys in jail doesn't guarantee that they'll never come out. And now I'm going bananas tonight because I can't remember the name of this mayor. Well, huge impact on the Transparency International Index of going from a country ranking highest on legal fairness <coughs> to lowest on legal fairness, an impact of 2.242 on that scale of going from 0 to 10. So if you could make Nigeria, Portugal, um, if you could make Nigeria, Portugal, then it would have the same Portuguese level of corruption, which is much lower. On the survey stuff, I'm going to try to bring it to a close shot. This high level of perception of corruption and trust and corruption and inequality, looking at surveys in the Nordic countries and the United States, you don't see that same link. Now, the great exceptions. I'll get to. The, I'll do this quickly and then and wind up. There are a couple places that just don't fit this mold. Singapore and Hong Kong, not democracies, moderately lie high levels of inequality and the best modest levels of trust. Botswana again. However, all three of them have relatively low levels of corruption. Hong Kong and Singapore are among the lowest in the world. All three had very strong anti-corruption cases. We talked about ICAC here with your chair in sociology. And but there were anti-corruption commissions in Africa that were not widely trusted. Afghanistan had a very effective anti-corruption commission, so they say, until it turned out that we found out that the head of the anti-corruption commission in Afghanistan in the 1970s had been convicted of selling cocaine in Las Vegas. Now, they all had anti-corruption drives, but they all had something else. External threats and politics of mass persuasion. Singapore and Hong Kong were worried that China would be stemming, would be uh, creating conflicts with their labor unions. And Botswana was afraid of South Africa. And all three countries perceived external threats. Honesty was the way out. Because in order to become economically prosperous, you need investment. In order to have investment, you have to reduce corruption. So all three countries made deals with their citizens. You play along with us on this anti-corruption drive. We will make you better off, and we will invest in social welfare programs. And in all three places, it worked. So. Is there a solution? I argue yes. It has to deal with economic inequality, and the best way to reduce economic inequality is through universalistic rather than means-tested social welfare programs. In 2005, Bu Rothstein of Gutterborg and I published a piece in World Politics where we argued that means-tested social welfare programs demonize people, and they make people 
become less trusting, whereas universalistic social welfare programs create both more equality and a greater sense of social solidarity. Now, there is one universal welfare program that seems to be the best for this, and it's universal public education, free. It's difficult to do because to provide universal programs in highly unequal countries, you have the problem of envy and jealousy. So in Romania, where people see all these little corrupt people getting rich, why should they want to spend money sending their kids to school for free the same way that my kids get to go to school? So this envy creates these real demands against universalistic social welfare programs. And in fact, in virtually every transition country, they have made a move away from universalism towards means-tested and perhaps paid fee-for-service programs as well. And there's also the other problem that the programs will not work because of corruption. So why should we give money to teachers who ask for money for grades? So you sort of have to solve two problems at the same time. And I'm going to go, I've already talked about a little bit of this. And here's the problem. There is evidence, even on a small scale, it's a small end, there are not many countries of common corruption, that virtually every country that has conquered corruption has had universal public education. And if you look at some of the stories of the Nordic countries, you can almost establish a causal timeline on this. And in parts of the United States, you have the same thing, where you can establish a causal timeline. The difficulty is not only with envy and jealousy and the perception of whether the institution can deliver the goods, but also, whenever I give this talk in a developing country, I get the same question. But it's so expensive! We can't afford to educate everybody for free. We can't even afford to educate everybody and have them pay for it. And my response is, given the state of corruption, you can't afford not to. And the question is, you can sink one way or you can sink another way. Choose your poison. I don't guarantee my solution is going to work, but you have concrete evidence that yours has failed. So I suggest here that without policy change, there is little hope for curbing corruption. And that's where I conclude and end, and I thank you for your kind attention. Thank you. And I think I hope for the time you asked for, right? Well,